We live in kind of an interesting time where, to some degree, it's almost impossible to get lost. If you, were to, if you travel someplace, say, in your car driving, and, and you have a smartphone, uh, there are many, many different kinds of applications you can load onto that phone that will provide you directions to where you're going. You knew of these things, right? Google Maps and Apple Maps and um, I don't know what else there is. But you can know where you're going. You can know about when you arrive. Anybody else, when you put in the directions to a location, you'll put in, uh, I want to go to uh, the Rogue Valley Mall. Put it in for my house. And, and the little lady on the phone will say, you will arrive at noon. You'll arrive at 12 noon. And what do you say when she says that? Challenge accepted. I, can, I see your 12 noon, and I'm going to raise you five minutes. I can beat your time. Now, guys, don't do that. That's not, that's not a safe way to drive, but it sure is a lot of fun. Um, uh, it can tell you uh, what your, which way to go, the shortest way to go, the, the fastest way to go, depending on the traffic. It can assess the traffic conditions for you. And even on a trip, these navigational tools can tell you where uh, restaurants are on the way. You remember the old days? I mean, the old days where you'd have to drive down the freeway and you'd look at the signs and say, uh, uh, Cletus's uh, uh, truck stop, next stop. It, enjoy your greasy fried everything. And nowadays, you pull it up and you look at the restaurants and then you look at Yelp and you say, well, I don't know, that one only gets three stars. Keep going. It can tell you where to, to get fuel. I mean, these navigational tools are, are, we're never really lost. We always know where we're going. We know where we've been, know where we're going. It's, it's really uh, kind of interesting. Today, is, as we're looking at uh, this passage, uh, uh, we're looking at the journey of Jesus into Jerusalem on this roadway, and we're going to be uh, using these terms of uh, roadway and navigating because it, it helps us understand Jesus was on his way somewhere. And he was on his way, and he was traveling with his disciples, and he was traveling with his followers. And as he approached Jerusalem, more and more people sort of became attached to his journey into Jerusalem. The question is, if they had a navigational tools at that time, which of course they didn't, this is the question, did these folks who were with Jesus, did they have any idea where he was going? Now, they knew where he was at, and they kind of knew the direction he was headed, but the question is, did they know where he was going? Because as we read the Gospels, and especially this morning we're going to be looking in, in three of them, Matthew, John, and Luke, Jesus is on the glorious road. This is, a glory, this is the road that is the final uh, movement of Christ to complete the work of redemption. Uh, the work of the Father had called him to do as God in the flesh to bring redemption and forgiveness of sins. So this is the great culmination of his great ministry. This is the glorious road he is on, and what we're going to do is this journey he takes, this last uh, few moments uh, of his life, is we're going, to, we're going to take three stops on this road, okay? We're going to look at three different places. There's a lot more we could look at, but I want to look at three things in particular to answer this question regarding the people who were with Jesus did that day. On this glorious road, did they know where he was going? And as we often do, by the end of our time together, we're going to ask this of ourselves. Do we know where he is going on this glorious road? Okay, first stop. Where do you want to stop first? Uh, get out your Google Apps, right? Okay, um, here we go. John chapter 11. We're leaving Matthew already. John chapter 11. This road in Jerusalem actually starts before he begins traveling. The first stop Jesus is going to make on this road is the graveyard. 
the first stop Jesus is going to make on this road, this glorious road, is the graveyard. Jesus was good friends with a man named Lazarus. He was also good friends with uh, Mary and uh, her sister Martha. And Mary's uh, brother was Lazarus, Lazarus, and he was sick. And they lived in a town called Bethany. Now, I don't know if you can picture Jerusalem in your mind or if you've got a map in the back of your Bible. Uh, Bethany is due almost straight east, maybe east to the south of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So Bethany would be on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem, not too far. Uh, not too far if you're driving or flying. If you're walking, maybe it's got a lot of ups and downs. And so Jesus is making his way now from Galilee, the northern part of Israel, and he's on his way to Jerusalem when Lazarus falls sick. And they send word to Jesus, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Now, why would you send word to Jesus that your brother is sick? We want him healed. Jesus, come on. Let's knock this sucker out. Lazarus is one of your good buddies. If you'll hear, heal perfect strangers that you happen upon on the road, certainly you would heal your good friend Lazarus. And so Jesus does what you would expect of the loving, gracious Savior who would never harm a fly, right? What's he do? Let's hang out here for a couple of days, guys. That's what he says in John chapter 11. He, he tells his followers, he says, well, he's not sick. He's not dead yet. We're going to we're going to spend some more time here. This will not end in death for Lazarus. While Jesus lingers, who knows doing what? Could you imagine what Mary and Martha, what is he doing? What's taking so long? Just come here. He's going to, while Jesus lingers, Lazarus, of course, dies. Now, Jesus said this would not end in death for Lazarus, but Lazarus wasn't cooperating, and neither was his illness. So Lazarus dies, and they do with Lazarus what you would always do with someone uh, then. They buried him in a tomb. I don't know if you know how they do their burial routine, but they have a tomb that's cut out or dug out uh, kind of like a cave, and the body goes into the cave, and it's left there uh, for a period of time. Actually, it's left there for quite a while so that all that is left is the bones. So it's left in there for a while. That's where everything sort of does what it does. I don't know. It gets kind of gooky. You don't want to go in there in the meantime is what you don't want to do. Then when everything is dried up, when all the, all the grossness is gone, they go in later. They collect the bones and they put those bones in a much smaller box uh, called, uh, uh, the technical term is bone box. It's a very <laughs> fancy word. Uh, and that box is stored where uh, the rest of the family's remains might be. And oftentimes, for a family, a grave that was cut in would be used many, many, many times. Uh, you could use it uh, numerous times. That's one of the things when Jesus is buried. Notice in the Gospels, what does it say? A tomb that had never been used. As a Westerner, we say, well, duh. How many times is it used? Well, in a, a family tomb, it might be used over generations. So he is put in the tomb, and he's going to do what he's supposed to do. Get kind of gross. That's what his job is at that point. Jesus then finally arrives in Bethany, and Mary and Martha are very upset. In fact, Martha says to him, if you had been here, he would not have died. Oh, that's an aside. It's not that. Anybody prayed that prayer before? Okay, good. You're in good company. If you had been here, Jesus, don't worry about it. He's going to rise again. And Martha would have none of his religiosity. Of course he's going to rise again. I know all about the end of times. I've read all the end times books. 
I don't want to hear your platitudes about everything's going to be happy. We're going to skip in heaven. It'll be lots of fun. He's gone now, Jesus. Where is he? And Jesus says, just believe. Believe in who I am. And she confesses that he is the Messiah. Jesus goes out to where Lazarus is buried in the tomb, and he sees the people there weeping. He sees the tomb, and, and the Bible says he breaks down weeping. He, he breaks down in sorrow. Now, he knows Lazarus is about to come back to life. He breaks down in sorrow at the devastation that sin has caused humankind, that now death is a thing. He gives the order, roll the stone away, and they give him good advice. He ignores it. Uh, Lord, by now his body stinketh, in the, if you've got the King James. That's my favorite rendering of that particular verse. He says, roll it away. Lazarus, come out, or as ought to be tried, Lazarus, this way. Hear my voice, come to my voice. And Lazarus comes out and he says, take those grave clothes off of him, as if to say, those no longer fit him. He's not a dead man any longer. Lazarus is raised from the dead. I mean, can you believe this? Now all of a sudden, the, 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 Jesus not only is able to heal people, he's not only able to uh, heal crippled people, he is able to make blind people see, he is able to stop all kinds of physical conditions, he can actually stop and reverse the decaying process so a, a dead man four days in the ground can come out looking perfectly healthy. Unbelievable. All the Galileans that had traveled with Jesus, the Galileans, the northern part of Israel, had traveled with him down to Jerusalem are going to be just, this is unbelievable. We worship the Messiah who raises dead people. Now it's next level excitement about this Messiah. It's, he, he raises dead people. Now, when he is coming to Jerusalem, you can imagine that Jerusalem, uh, the people living in Jerusalem, uh, to some degree, would have a condescending view of Jesus. He is a Galilean. He's from Nazareth. I mean, can you believe it? He's from Nazareth. And they would have a condescending view of him and say, listen, your quaint, uh, backwoods, country bumpkin prophet might serve well up in the regions of Galilee, but here in Jerusalem, we have a little bit higher standard of what we think is impressive. And then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and we know from the reaction of the people of Jerusalem what happens. Okay, this guy's the real deal. So as Jesus is making his way over the top of the Mount of Olives, the people from Galilee who have followed him are following him to Jerusalem. And the people of Jerusalem who realize the Messiah is there, that does what? Raises dead people, and they go nuts. They're spreading out their coats on the ground where donkeys are going to walk on purpose. With no concern for the condition of their coats, post-donkey. If you go to a parade, you know the condition of those coats post-donkey because they have a, a guy in a clown suit pushing a wheelbarrow. <laughs> so this uh, movement of Christ into Jerusalem, the idea here is the king is coming, the king who can't die, the king who keeps his followers alive. What's the primary leverage of Rome on the people it conquers? Rome determines when you die and how you die. They have a mechanism, a machine of death, the army of Rome, countless legions whose primary job is to keep people in line or kill them if they don't. What do you have if you have a king who can't die, who keeps his followers alive? We call that an unstoppable military advantage. 
How many legions of Rome would it take to destroy Jesus and 10 of his followers if Jesus can't die and Jesus can raise them to life? Rome could send every legion they have in their repertoire and Jesus could wipe them out because he can't die. And his, his followers be, would be kept alive. This is unbelievable. Here is the, the king of the universe who can't die, who is willing to and is able to raise his followers from the dead. Who's in? Everybody was in. Matthew 16, 21, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. There's a little bit of a dark cloud here that not everybody was quite grappling with as they ought to. This was what Jesus just earlier in the book of Matthew, Matthew 16, 21, says. From this time on, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, listen, he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Jesus has a plan, he has a purpose, he has a, a mission on this glorious road of redemption, and he's telling his disciples, listen guys, here's the plan, real simple, straightforward, going to go to Jerusalem, going to suffer many things, I'm going to be killed, and three days later, raised from life. Are we clear? Put it all in your calendars, get it lined out. Here is what the plan is. Jesus predicts his own death. He predicts his own resurrection. He helps them understand the whole plan of the road that he is traveling on. Now, here's something I want you to understand about this glorious road that Jesus is, is traveling on. And this is kind of how it works. Roads do interesting things. Uh, roads converge with one another, and roads diverge off of one another. You'll have two roads that will come together, and they're going to the same place, but at a certain point, they will diverge apart from each other. So here's what you have Jesus saying he's going to do. Guys, I'm going to go from Galilee. I'm going to go down to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things, be killed, three days later rise from the dead. So his glorious road is traveling into Jerusalem to bring the purposes and kingdom of God to bear on the sins of all of mankind. The people of Israel and the disciples and his followers are traveling the same road saying, we want to go into Jerusalem with a conquering king. And here in this moment, just outside of Jerusalem, notice these roads converge, don't they? Jesus has a, a common purpose with the people of Jerusalem. Let's go to Jerusalem and conquer. And, and the roads converge on one another. And, and so everybody's excited. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. The people are going to Jerusalem. Let's go and conquer. But notice, you can already tell at a certain point those roads are going to diverge from one another, aren't they? Jesus has one plan, which is, I'm going to go in there and die. The people of Jerusalem and the people of Galilee have another plan. Let's go in and make everybody else die. In fact, look at Peter's response. Matthew 16, verse 21. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Unbelievable. Peter is rebuking the creator of the universe. Anyway, Peter took him aside. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. If this is Peter's perspective, having just earlier, just up in verse 13 of Matthew 16, Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. 
So G Peter's all on board. Jesus, you're the creator of the universe. You are the Messiah. You are God in the flesh. And when Jesus discloses to Peter, this one who believes, that he's going to go die, Peter says, no way, man. That's crazy talk. And Jesus gently rebukes him, get, me, get behind me, Satan. Saying, if anyone who would get in the way of Jesus' purpose to redeem mankind through his death and resurrection is working on behalf of the devil. So we can see how quickly and easy it is to say, well, I want to do what Jesus wants to do, but as soon as his plans are fully disclosed, most people will say, no way, man. That doesn't make any sense. So the roads converge just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus on his way in to conquer sin and death through his death and resurrection. And the people of Israel, those from Jerusalem and Galilee, saying the king has come to bring victory. All of a sudden we realize that Jesus did not raise Lazarus from the dead to show that he could conquer Rome. Why did he raise Lazarus from the dead? To show that, no, that death has no power over him. So when he dies, they shouldn't even be worried. When Jesus died, everybody should say, it's okay, he raised Lazarus from the dead, he's got this. He has victory over death. But that's not how they saw it. When Jesus got to Jerusalem and started taking the road of his own crucifixion, how quickly did everybody abandon him? They were gone very, very quickly. When they realized his glorious road was one of death and burial and resurrection, quickly their road went a different way. This is something we need to keep in mind. The work of Jesus is always redemptive and focused at the cross. The work of Jesus is always redemptive and focused at his work on the cross and his work in the grave and his work being raised from the dead. We can say it another way. His powerful works are always for his purpose, not our comfort. What would have brought great comfort to every man, woman, and child living in Israel? To have Rome gone. His purposes were something different, and his purposes were like a laser beam focus on his redemptive work on the cross, in the tomb, and in his resurrection. And he is not primarily concerned with their comfort. On this glorious road... The dead live. The dead live to demonstrate that Jesus has overcome death, but his powerful works in raising the dead is intended to get our focus not on our own comfort and deliverance, but our focus on his redemptive purpose. It's better to be forgiven of your sins than to live forever. It's better to be forgiven of your sins than have Rome gone. Their roads converged when he come, came in as the victorious king. Their roads diverged when they realized he was victorious king over sin and death. They weren't as interested with those things. First stop in the graveyard on this glorious road, the dead live to discover that Jesus always works for his purposes, not primarily our comfort. Look at the next stop. The next stop is not the graveyard. Let's get out of the graveyard. That's grody. Now we get to the grandstand, the crowd's Cheering. This is favorite part of any story, right? Look at Matthew 21 again. We've already read it, so you know what happens. Matthew 21, he was approaching Jerusalem. He, he went to Bethphage, which was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, went over the top of Mount of Olives, and then was coming down the hill. The road would have gone through the Kidron Valley and then up into the city of Jerusalem itself. 
And as he's coming, the crowds are behind him and in front of him. They're just all around him, this massive sea of humanity, cheering and singing, celebrating. He's riding on a donkey, which is a fulfillment of prophecy. Everybody there would have known. This is, this is him saying he's the Messiah. He is the king. He is the king of peace. He is riding on an unbroken colt. That's tricky from what I understand. I've never ridden on a donkey I don't think, but I, my understanding is riding on an untrained young donkey is difficult, but not when you're the creator of said donkey and you can make it do whatever you want. He is the king of peace, and the king of power rides quietly in while the crowd cheers and yells and sings his praises, and they shout. They sing this down in verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is a transliteration of the Hebrew word, which is translated, save us, our Savior. Save us, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote from, uh, I said Matthew, I meant Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 25. I'm reading from the New International Version, which translates Hosanna to save us. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Verse 26 of Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. They're saying, save us God and you are the one who can save us. He came even for us. He's here. I mean, can you imagine every possible stress and anxiety they had in their life, they saw him and they saw him as the deliverer from it. That would be a party, wouldn't it? I mean, he heals people. He raises people from the dead. I mean, certainly it's just a matter of time before their political troubles are over. He has come even for us. Hosanna, our Savior, is here. I might suggest this, and you might disagree with me, and that's fine. I kind of feel like the crowd here overestimates their importance. I think maybe they have overestimated how necessary they are to this particular scene. They might be thinking of it this way. Every king needs what? Every king needs a kingdom. What does a kingdom have? People in the kingdom. And certainly this wasn't a democratic vote. They didn't show up at their precincts and vote for their um, electoral college representatives or whatever might be the case. It was much more, much different. They say, you know, the king will be whoever can get the biggest crowd cheering the loudest. And this guy has got a big crowd, and they're cheering pretty loud. I mean, if nobody was there, he wouldn't be king, right? He'd be insignificant. He'd be nothing. Was, I, I think they've overestimated how critical they are for him being king. They, well, certainly, without us, he is nothing. Without us, he is not a king. He has no power. He has no influence. Without uh, followers, he's not a leader. Without a kingdom, he's not a king. And really, at this point, they're the ones who are going to decide who's in charge and who does what. How do we know this is true? Look over in Matthew 27. Matthew 27, some things have changed between Matthew 21 and Matthew 27. Jesus has been arrested. His disciples have abandoned him. He now stands in front of the governor, Pilate. Pilate is sort of seeking to bring about justice. Never mind, no, he wasn't. He was trying to calm the crowd down. He had two prisoners, Barabbas and Jesus. 
And he's trying to get the crowd to simmer down. Now, we don't know that this crowd is all the same people. It could have been some of the same people. It could have been many of the same people. It could have been not very many of the same people. Frankly, it doesn't matter. There was nobody who stood by Jesus on the day he died. He had been abandoned by all. So here is what the crowd has decided because Jesus has fallen into uh, the hands of Rome and has demonstrated no ability to overcome them like they might have expected. Verse 17 of Matthew 27. When the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, you know, this crowd, this all-important, all-powerful crowd, which do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him, that is, the religious leaders. So he's wanting to, tell me who you want, because the crowd now is going to decide who's the Messiah, right? I mean, because Jesus certainly has no power to save or a redeem if the crowd has turned against him, right? I mean, the crowd is the one who will decide. Well, that's what it seems like if you were a casual observer there in that day. Verse 21 of Matthew 27, which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with this Jesus who is called the Messiah? Crucify him, of course. He's useless to us. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. He committed the unpardonable sin of not meeting the expectations of the crowd. Crucify him, they shouted, I should say, with all of their strength. So the crowd here understood their power. They had the power to celebrate him when he walked into Jerusalem, and they had the power to send him to the cross, right? The crowd has no power over Jesus. Everything is operating precisely according to the plan of the Father. The crowd is incidental. Everything he needed to do could have been done with zero people other than himself. But the crowd has overestimated their importance and their role in the ministry of Christ to redeem mankind from his sin. Let me put it this way. The crowd's cheering. Jesus' ability to save and Jesus' ability to reign as king is not depending on the fervor of a crowd. Jesus' ability to save is dependent on the cross and his resurrection alone. It does not require a fervent crowd. It doesn't require an exhilarated uh, populace. It requires a cross and an open tomb. The crowds are cheering. The crowds are enjoying the fact that here for a a few brief moments, the road of Christ and the road thereon are the same. But as soon as his road heads to a cross and a tomb, they have no use for him. And he doesn't bother him at all. His his plan has no dependency on the fervor of the crowd. Earlier we said, in regard to the graveyard, the work of Jesus is always according to his purpose and not for our comfort. Comfort, here we might say it this way. The glory of Jesus is always according to his purpose, not our agenda. The work of Jesus is always according to his purpose and not for our comfort, raising the dead. Here, the glory of Jesus 
is always for his purpose, to redeem, seek and save the lost through the cross and the grave. It's not our agenda. He is not checking our calendars to see how he fits. His glory is revealed and not to the degree that he is able to fit into what we think is important. His glory is revealed to the excuse me, degree that what he thinks is important is done. Everything he thinks is important, in fact, is done. He died on the cross perfectly. He died precisely when he meant to. He went in the grave precisely when he meant to. He rose from the grave exactly when he meant to. How do I say this in a religious way that you won't think I'm being? Dude is awesome. I mean, all of the world is against him. He just nails it. It's unbelievable. And his glory is not hinged upon our agenda. And listen, in that moment, even though our agenda is critically important to us, there is no other agenda that is more important to us. We can give praise to God that he is not hinging his glory on our little agenda. Oh, man, heaven forbid we got everything we wanted. It would be so small, so little. He's doing something so much bigger, his glory cannot hinge on our little plans. The crowds are cheering, and he's not interested in their purposes. He's interested in their redemption. Two stops so far. First was the graveyard. The dead live. Second stop, the grandstand, the crowds cheer. Third stop is the gate. Notice how they all started with G. I never do that. That was on accident, mostly. Actually, I came with the first two with G and the last one. I gotta have a G, otherwise it fit right. The king weeps. Luke 19. I think this had to be one of the strangest things to observe. He was approaching Jerusalem. Our guess would be he was coming sort of obviously from the east, most likely to the northeast, entering the gate, which might be called Stephen's Gate on the north end of the city. As he approached Jerusalem, remember, nothing has changed here. A giant crowd following in front and before, cheering and singing from Psalm 118, Hosanna, save us, son of David. And he's approaching Jerusalem with this crowd around him. What's he doing? Weeping over it. So here's Jesus on this donkey with people singing and dancing all around him, and he is crying. Something's wrong here. Something is amiss. The crowds are cheering. The crowds are singing. Yet Jesus is weeping. What the crowd is giving Christ, listen, is not what he wants or needs. I mean, this is an unbelievable scene. If you could imagine, this is a church service. You've got God in the physical form present with the people of God, and they're dancing around him singing worship songs from the Old Testament. And God there in the middle of their gigantic outdoor off-the-chain worship service is crying. I mean, isn't that a little bit scary to think? This crowd is not giving him what he wants. He's not interested. In fact, it's breaking his heart what he sees in the people around him. Because what, what they're seeking, what they're desiring in that moment is not what he is up to. They're desiring something very different than what he is about. 
Here's a way of thinking about it that I think is a little bit stark. In their spiritual fervor, they completely miss God. In their spiritual uh, fervor, in the ginning up of some kind of spiritual uh, thing in their own heart, they completely missed what God was up to. If you want to, you can turn with me back Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33. I think this parable is timely for this moment on this glorious road. The king weeping at the gate. Jesus tells this parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, he dug a wine press in it, and he built a watchtower. If he were in Oregon, he'd build a microbrewery, probably not a vineyard, but... He rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he moved to another place. Very normal practice in first century uh, Israel. What would happen is he would rent out the land, and they would harvest the crop, and the landowner, as a part of the rent, would receive a certain percentage of the crop that was taken. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Verse 35, the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, they killed another, they stoned a third. He sent other servants. He kept throwing servants at them. Bring me your harvest. Bring me what is due me. He treated, they treated all of his servants the same way. Finally, he said, you know what? If I send my son to them, they'll respect my son. Verse 38, when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, let's kill him and take his inheritance. Assuming that the father of the son must be gone, dead, or never returning. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do? Verse 41, the people answer, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he'll rent out the vineyard to other tenants. Look at verse 42. This is where this matters. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's saying the son they kicked out was and will be the cornerstone. They have rejected the Son, and He, uh, the Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that He's quoting this psalm? Do you know where that psalm is from? That's also Psalm 118, about three verses earlier from the quote of Hosanna. Look with me, it's Psalm 118, verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Verse 25, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is saying, the psalm you're quoting, saying that I have come as your Messiah, I will quote back to you and say, you have rejected me. You were singing from empty hearts and empty mouths. He says this over in Matthew. If you would have known what would bring peace, if only you would have known what would bring peace. I said Matthew. I meant Luke 19. <coughs> he says, if you would have known what would have, been pre would, would have brought peace, you could have had it, but it's been hidden from their eyes. Jesus brings the people of Israel, Jesus brings the world peace with God, and they wanted something else. 
Jesus says, I have come as the Son of the Father and have brought you peace with that Father. All of your, your theft of the Father's goods up to this point are forgotten. I will redeem you by my death on the cross and my resurrection. And, and what they say? Not interested. We're not interested. How about you die and we get all the Father's stuff anyway? That, that's precisely what he's saying they are saying to him. They wanted something else other than peace with God. And he weeps because he realizes they've chosen the lesser thing, the smaller thing, the insignificant thing. This goes without saying, but let me just say the obvious. If you want something from Jesus other than peace with God, you will be terribly disappointed because that's what he does. If you want something from Jesus other than peace with God, you will be disappointed as this crowd was disappointed. His whole journey on this glorious road was to go to the cross, to go to the tomb, and then bust that sucker open so we could have peace with God. And there's nothing better he could possibly offer us. If we want something other than that from Jesus, we will be disappointed because that's kind of what he's giving This crowd comes together with Jesus. The roads converge right outside of Jerusalem. And this first sign we see of him sitting on these donkeys weeping because he knows the crowd and even his disciples to a large degree have no idea where his road is going and they will not be interested in following him. Sacred review. At the graveyard we said what? The work of Jesus is always for his purpose, that is redemption, not our what? Comfort. I know, you're already trying to forget it. The work of Jesus is always for his purpose, not our comfort. Second, at the grandstand, the cheering crowd, the majestic glory of Jesus is always for his purpose, not our what? Our agenda. Finally, this one. The deepest love of Christ is revealed in his purpose on the cross and in the grave, not our expectations. His deepest love for us is revealed in him giving us what we need, sins forgiven through the cross and the resurrection, not our expectations, which is Jesus better show up A, B, C, and D. And he demonstrates his love for us by not meeting our expectations, but rather providing us precisely what we need. His work his glory, and His love are all rooted in His redemptive purpose, which was designed to provide one thing, which is what? Peace with God. Peace with God by having our sins wiped out because He died on the cross to redeem us. So if we can keep this picture in our mind. You may be getting tired of it, but I'm not concerned about that. The road is now coming to the end. It gets to Jerusalem, and the road goes two different ways. One way goes the crowd's way beat up Rome, political stability, blessing and honor, and God can mind his own business for the most part, if that's possible, right? The other road is the road of redemption, which is death and the tomb and resurrection. And when he comes to the fork in that road and they diverge apart from one another, he goes one way and the crowd says, we're on different roads and we have no interest in where you're going. In fact... We'll help you die on your road. We have no interest in going where you're going. 
I might say it this way, this is the diverging road of glory, and this is why it's really, really important to us. We have to decide at some point when we come to that diverging road in our life, are we going to go on the road of glory with Christ, or are we going to stay on the road of our agenda, on our comfort, and our expectations? Or are we going to crucify all of those things with Him and follow Him on the road of glory? Let me just point out a couple of passages which help us think clearly about this. Luke 14. Again, this theme, large crowds. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. I'm just going to read half a dozen verses or so. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and He turned to them and said this. Jesus was always mindful of wanting to maximize attendance. I'm being sarcastic. I need need that sign right here. I can hit the button, sarcasm alert. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Paraphrase. Hate everyone in your life and be willing to die crucified. And yeah, you can follow me. That's cool. And what does everybody ask? What's the upside for us here? Verse 28. Keep this in mind. He does not temper his expectations here. He doesn't, well, maybe that was a little harsh, guys. Let me tone it down for you. No, he makes it worse. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose this other king? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. What does he say? I just, let, me, let me rephrase. I know I was a little bit harsh there. I'm serious. Think about it. Following me means coming off of your road onto my road and all your stuff stays over there. You don't get to keep one foot on your road and one foot on my road. They're diverging roads. They don't sort of run next to each other. You can't sort of jump back and forth between the two. He says, I'm going over here, and where I'm going is the opposite direction of all that other stuff. He's just stating the obvious. You can't be in Central Point and Ashland at the same time, can you? And and not, not be alive. If you're there, you're not there. And he's saying, if you're with me, your other stuff is not there. That's a different road. That's a road of your agenda. That's a road of your comfort. That's a a road of your expectations. My road of glory, which ends on a cross, is not over there. You've got to diverge with me. And he says, we shouldn't pull any punches here. He says, listen, if that's not for you, that's, that's your deal. If you want your stuff and my stuff, that's not an option, though. He said, he, he very, is very frank with us. You should think about it. You should count the cost. You should think about it. Following me is, is serious business because I don't, I, I'm not, Jesus is not saying, please invite me into your life so I can join you in your fabulous journey. He's not in heaven bored just hoping somebody with an exciting life will finally invite him in. He is saying, I want you to abandon your life that you find compelling and join me in the only thing that is actually compelling. The glorious road of redemption. He's not calling us to less than. He's calling us to better than. 
I would suggest he's asking us to count the cost, not necessarily only of following him, count the cost of not. Because it means we've missed it. Matthew 20, beginning in verse 22. Jesus says this to his disciples as they're clamoring for chief positions among his administration. And he says this, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Paraphrase, can you die on a cross like I'm about to? Oh, we can. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's no problem. And she said, don't worry about it. You're going to. Oh, man, that sweat goes down your back. I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry, Jesus. We were just sort of saying from a theological perspective we could, in fact, if necessary. But we don't want to. What are you talking about? You will indeed drink from my cup. You will indeed when, when we walk on the road, to, road of redemption with Christ, we're walking into His life, His life of redemption, which is a life that is uh, cross-oriented, a, a life of intentionally dying to myself, if needed, on an actual cross. Well, what does that look like if we don't actually end up on a cross, which most haven't, some have, but most haven't? We can discover that in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. The Apostle Paul says, I'll tell you what it looks like to die on a cross for the people in your church. Well, that's just rude, Paul, first of all. Have you met the people in my church, right? I mean, some of you, that's what you're thinking. Well, then Paul says, here's what it looks like to function in relationship. Here's the, the fancy word we can use for it. Relationships that are, are you ready? You like fancy words? Eh, okay, here it is. Cruciform. Relationships informed by a cross. Relationships that say this relationship's going to look like both of us look at a cross with our Savior on it. Jesus, in the very nature of God, I should start at the beginning of verse 5, in your relationships with, with one another have this same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, took on the very nature of a servant. He was made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. How do we function in relationships in the body of Christ if Jesus' glorious road is a road to a cross? We do that every single day with our spouses, with our children, with our employers, with people in our home group, with people in our church. We humble ourselves every single day, and you say, well, at what point, though, is it a little bit over the top? When you're dead. That's where that road goes. It says, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And you say, but have you met the people I hang out with, right? Some of you are thinking this. They're going to take, take advantage of me. Thankfully, Jesus only died for people who understood what he was doing. I think they might think that. How many people understood what Jesus was up to? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us in complete humiliation when we were still in full-on rebellion mode. So Jesus knows all about this notion that people will take advantage of the fact that we will humble all ourselves and be obedient. Can you drink the cup that I drink, Jesus 
says. Can you be humble and serve those who do not deserve your service? That's the cup he's drinking. Can we serve those when there's no relational or emotional payoff? Can we serve those that have greater cost than benefit? That's the kind of service Jesus offers. That's his glorious road. Romans 8, last verse, set of verses. and I'm going to read beginning of verse 31 and read to verse 39. There's the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 <clears throat> talking about suffering. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, we should answer that. That's a good question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Somebody, apparently. Nobody. Nobody can be. What's the worst they can do to us? What, do you think the, the people in Egypt won that battle? Are you kidding me? Christians won. Terrorists, zero. They killed people and sent them to heaven. I mean, I know, I know it's depressing to think of, but this is how Paul frames this. It's like, no, no. You don't understand, the guy with the bomb on his body lost that round. Satan lost that round. He thought by killing people that was a problem? Not when your God raises from the dead. This is not a problem. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who will bring any charge against those who God have, whom God has chosen? Nobody. Nobody will bring a charge. Has anybody in the room done anything bad this week? No, not us. Why'd you come to church? I thought that was the whole idea. Okay, a couple of you maybe have done something a little bad, right? <laughs> this morning uh, in the lobby. Um, I know how you guys are. It's fine. So who, how, how can this possibly be true? How can it possibly be true that, that no one can condemn it? How is it possibly to be true that we walked in here full of all kinds of stuff, and it says no one can condemn us? How is this possible? Well, it's only possibly true if all of our sin has gone on to him and all of his righteousness has come on to us, and he can just stand there and say, covered, paid for, don't worry about it. That's the only way that makes any sense, is if all sin has been redeemed. Who then is the one who condemns? No one, he says in verse 32, 34. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us, paid for, paid for, paid for, paid for, nailed it. You cannot out-sin his ability to say paid for. There is no accusation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ Jesus? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I hope not nakedness. I have a four-year-old. Kid doesn't know what it means to wear clothes. For your sake we face death, death all day long. We are considered, think of our brothers and sisters in Egypt with this, we are considered sheep to be slaughtered. What does he say? For your sake we face death all day long. This is, the, this is the road of the cross. Verse 37, so that's bad news, right? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. We have a problem with death because we have a king who conquered death. 
This is his glorious road. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, the present, the future, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why in the world would you want to stay on your little road? What in the world is on your road that is so compelling that you would not gladly abandon all of it to be with this one who gives us life eternal and will conquer even in the midst of our death. His is a road of victory. His is a road of glory. And his, in fact, may be for many of us a road of slaughter in this life. But it is a road of victory nonetheless. So, Palm Sunday, shouting crowd, very exciting. I just want to give you uh, some insight, and most of you probably already know this, but I want you to think about this. Every, every single person who follows the Lord will at some point in your life, if not on occasions in your life, you will get to that moment where the party is over, and you say, now you're going there? Now, now, God, what I thought you were up to and what I expected you to be kind of into at this moment is not that. I didn't know I would be in this moment. I didn't know you would allow that to happen. Every person who has ever followed the Lord will have at some moment, some point in your life, where the road is going where you simply do not want to go, where, where Jesus is taking you to a road that says over the top of him, crucifixion. How do we respond in that moment? In John chapter 6, Jesus had just said that if anyone wants eternal life, they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And many, many, many people walked away. They said, this guy's out of his mind. Verse 60 of John 6, on hearing it, many of his disciples said this hard, who, who can accept this? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. But there are some here who don't believe. He went on to say this, this is why I told you that unless, excuse me, I misread it, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. He says, unless God moves in you by the power of the Spirit, you're not going to get it. Because this is, this is not easy stuff, he's saying. To, to say, I would rather die with Christ than live my agenda, he says, this is not simple stuff. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Can you believe that? They said, no thanks. Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to leave too, do you? Here's Simon Peter's answer. Lord, where should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter got to the point where he saw the road that Christ was on, and he saw the Christ 
himself, and he looked back at his little life. And now, what did he say? Where would I go? I, go back to that? How could I possibly go back to a life of my own agenda, my, my own comforts, and my own expectations when I can follow the Messiah to the cross? Now all of a sudden, because God had opened his eyes, there's no other road to be on. There's no other place I'd want to be. So Peter came to that divergence in the road, and he said, I'm going to stay with Christ. The party is over. The crowds have dissipated. The emotions have wound down. The exhilaration is gone. And Peter says, as hopefully I would pray that all of us say, where else would we go if not with the Christ? Someone has said this, that Jesus keeps his office at the end of our rope. And why is that the case? Why is it that Jesus uh, would say it is difficult for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Here's the reason. Because when we get to that place in the road, it's easier to follow Jesus on the road to the cross when we don't have a gilded road with rest stops and refreshments and massage chairs set up along it. If you come up to the choices or follow Jesus or a road that you're going to have to cut through with a machete... Following Jesus, frankly, makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? And Jesus makes it quite plain. He says, this is why it's difficult. When you get to the end of your rope and you have nowhere else to go, Jesus makes a lot of sense. And there's nothing wrong with that. Praise God that he uses those kinds of circumstances to drive us to the Messiah. But he is also saying this, at some moment in our life, we're going to have to come to the point, no matter how stunning and gilded and comfortable that road is, that is our life, where we say, you know what? That, that's too small a thing. What, what I really need is something bigger. And that can only be found in a, a Savior going to a cross. I would just ask you this. I don't know how often you've been that, in that place in your life where you come to the road and you know what it means to follow Christ and it means going on your road is you can't do it. My prayer for all of us would be when we come to that moment and say, I know what it means to follow Christ and I know it means walking away from my life I pray that God would move in us and we would say, where else would we go? Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. What else could I possibly desire? My prayer would be that we would love Jesus so much that no matter what road he happens to be on, that's the only place we would desire to be. That we would give up our comforts and our agendas and our expectations, and instead just follow Christ to a cross, to a tomb, and praise God one day to where? Glory. Our lives will look particularly small from that vantage point.